I wonder if anybody comes up to Steve Rails back today and says, I loved you in Nuki. Radio Drone. It's the mid-80s. I'm Josh Hadley. I work for Galan and Globus. Oh, I only wish I did. This is Radio Drome. I'm Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil Barely Awake Trachtenberg. I would also like to work for Golan Globus. Well, considering that one of them's dead and Canon's non-existent anymore, we, don't, we can only do that if we travel through time. I... <laughs> stumped you didn't i i you can tell that i'm tired all right back this week is peter look i actually showed up gajic texas chainsaw massacre 2 is a comedy no <laughs> and, jo- and joining us this week is brandon what the hell am i doing here Tenold. uh hey you know i have a time machine if you want to borrow it uh it's just as long as you give it back after or, or before you borrowed it, uh, it's a time machine, but yeah. Well, because if it's a time machine, does it even matter if we borrow it or if, even if we want to borrow it and then give it back since nothing will have happened to it? To your perspective, did anything happen to it? Uh, as long as you give it back, then let's say no. There you go. If you guys want to do something for the future, you can go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME and you will get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, we're going to travel back in time, though, to the mid-'80s, Canon Films, and we're going to look at the three Toby Hooper films that Canon put out, all three of which were disasters critically and financially, although I like all three of them. We're going to examine each of these and what happened, because... I think this was a very unique time in both Canon's history, but in horror sci-fi as well. Because you're coming off of E.T., you're coming off of The Thing, Blade Runner and whatnot, and the sci-fi field is opening up. You've got Glenn and Globus pouring millions and millions of dollars into these things and them failing one after another. And then you've got a unique director like Toby Hooper just finding no luck at the box office again and again and again after the Poltergeist debacle. It was just, this basically is what sealed his career to the direct-to-video hell he's in right now. So without going into each specific film, what do you think of the three canon Toby Hooper films as a whole? I am actually a big fan of Life Force. I think that's a movie that deserves much more of a cult reputation than it has. I also... I like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 after several years of hating it when I first saw it when I was young, but I warmed <laughs> up to it considerably. Invaders from Mars is the one I like the the least. Um, I feel like that one doesn't that one doesn't work quite as well as the other two, but it's still got good things about it. And yeah, it really is a shame that uh, especially the first two I mentioned that they you know they failed at the box office and got such a hostile critical reaction because i really don't think they deserved it i think there are three movies that were just not advertised properly especially texas chainsaw massacre 2 i mean i'm pretty sure not only was it not so well received theatrically but even like uh, even golem and globus themselves didn't like it because they they were like this is this is funny and comedic what's going on here why why is this they didn't even understand that it was meant to be a, a satirical film. So I think the the big the biggest fault of these movies not doing well, and they are they're very good movies. They're all of them have a fun sort of you know half satire, half real horror sort of vibe to them. Life Force has uh, some good comedic moments and some good like action and horror moments. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two has some really good gruesome moments, but also some really funny stuff too. And Invaders from Mars is obviously kind of meant to be satirical. And I I think not only did the audiences not understand, but Golem and Globus themselves didn't get what they were actually getting from Toby Hooper and completely mismarketed them, which is which is such a shame because they are some of his uh some of his works that stand out 
uh, next to, you know, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff. Like, I, Life Force is a movie I'd really like more people to see because it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty unique film. You got the space vampires, and which is which is pretty awesome. So I I think they are three just unfortunately mismarketed films that are actually awesome. Life Force is probably one of my all time favorite sci fi movies. It's just uh, just amazing. Um, now I'm talking the the director's European cut. That theatrical version is the one that I saw first. And I liked it, but I felt like there was something missing, and then it turned out that there was something missing. I mean, that, I mean, the score is different. There's a lot of changes that they uh, they made for the U.S. cut, and it doesn't feel the same, but the, the European cut is just a brilliant, brilliant movie. And uh, it's the epic sci-fi movie that Toby Hooper set out to make. He wanted to make this just massive film, and he succeeded. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is... is a, a real sidestep from the first one. And I don't say that in a negative way. It's just that the first one is such a gritty, just dismal horror film. And the second one is so tongue in cheek, satirical and goofy, uh, full of just uh, hilarious moments and some good scares and whatnot. But it definitely is more on, you know, the comedy side of the horror comedy that a lot of people just didn't get because, again, they, they went in expecting Texas Chainsaw 1 and they got what Texas Chainsaw 2 ended up being. Invaders from Mars, um, I think that uh, the production value in Invaders from Mars is great. I like the, the 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 aliens are just these really bizarre, weirdo-looking creatures. And it's another one that has a nice tongue-in-cheek nature to it. Because it does kind of present itself almost like a family movie, but it's not. <laughs> and... <laughs> I've never I've never seen the original one, so I can't compare the two. But uh, it's of the three. It's my least favorite of the three. But it's still I think it, it's like a good movie. Let's go back to 1985. Actually, let's go back to 1982. Toby Hooper's coming off of Poltergeist. And there's the whole who, who really directed Poltergeist fiasco that's following him. He doesn't do much for a little while. So then this... This newer company, Canon had been around since the 70s, but Glan and Globus didn't buy it until 1980, 1979 technically. They're still relatively up-and-comers at this point. Canon is really starting to make a name for themselves with their philosophy, and yes, I'm boiling it down here, B-movies on A-budgets. They basically looked at like Roger Corman-type movies, Charles Band-type movies. Those usually have a million-dollar budget at most. What happens if we make those same kind of movies, which are always fan favorites, but we throw 20 30 million dollars at these films so we're going to make these b movies now a movies so they they approached toby hooper now canon had this reputation for exclusivity that's why like when they signed charles bronson or chuck norris pretty much any movie you saw from chuck norris or charles bronson in the 80s was a canon film because they would sign people for exclusive mm -hmm. deals based on poltergeist they signed toby hooper for an exclusive three-picture deal so basically glenn and globus signed toby hooper for a three-picture exclusivity deal. So his next three films would be mega-budgeted movies here. They had been trying to make what the movie that would become Life Force. It was called Space Vampires at that point, based on the Colin Wilson novel. They'd been trying to make Space Vampires for a little while and having no luck. Well, Toby Hooper saw some potential in this. He went and hired Dan O'Bannon to adapt the book. And if you've ever read the book, by adapt, basically change everything. <laughs> All Dan O'Bannon basically left was the, the premise and some of the broad strokes. So it, it's it's not so much Colin Wilson's novel as it's Dan O'Bannon's movie. The movie had, correct me if I'm wrong, Cecil, one of the longest shooting schedules ever up to that point. Wasn't it 126 mm -hmm. days for principal photography? They said it, uh, it was roughly 120 days over the course of six months. That That is insane for a mm -hmm. movie in the 80s yeah, absolutely insane i mean that that just is is ridiculously long but the thing was they needed that time to to do every you know i mean they had the budget and they you know they just needed that time in order to do all the uh, the effects and everything because there were some effects that took like days to do the movie had a 25 million dollar budget which was canon's largest budget ever at that point film i think all 25 million is definitely on the screen but mm -hmm. the film only brought in 11.6 million off of that, so it didn't do so hot. It was released on the first day of summer, 1985, in a severely truncated form. 
We lost between 14 and 20 minutes. The, as Cecil pointed out, the score was changed. That's the version we all saw. Director's Cut was released on Laserdisc in the mid-90s, or really the international cut. It, it's kind of funny when you look at why this film failed here but did not in Europe. In Europe, they got the full version, where it was critically lauded as being a really great film. Here, we got the truncated version, where it was eviscerated for making no sense whatsoever. Well, the other thing that uh, happened was when it released, it was up. It got released against Rambo, Cocoon, and The Goonies. <laughs> All three of those ended up being in the top ten highest-grossing film, uh, the, the top ten highest-grossing films of 1985. So right out of the gate, it had the deck stacked against it. Sucks because it's like you got to look at it from that perspective. Like like back then, you know, nobody nobody knew that these movies were going to be that huge. You look at it now, and you're like, holy crap! You know, like of course everybody went to see these other movies. And uh, the other thing that I think uh, kind of screwed them over was just Canon's reputation. People were seeing Canon movies as what some, uh, as they talked about in the uh, the documentary, uh, the Electric Boogaloo documentary, they were seeing them as a schlock factory. And a lot of times they um, they weren't piling people in. Like if, if it had, you know, 20th Century Fox in front of it or something, people probably would have rolled in. And, oh my God, this movie is going to be amazing. And they probably would have had maybe a better ad campaign. But when it came out, oh, it's canon. Oh, this movie is probably going to be another, you know, uh, just d- dumb knockoff of something else, a bad alien ripoff or whatnot. And instead, they had some incredible talent going behind it. They had John Dykstra. Uh, they had uh, uh, the, oh God, Alan Hume, who was the DOP of the Bond movies. They had just so many incredibly talented people working with them and just making this film that, like you said, it cost $25 million, but it's all up on the screen. There was not a cent wasted. It in fact, looks. Uh, in fact, I'm surprised it only cost $25 million. It looks way more expensive than that. Oh, God, the mm. ending is f- like London is on fire. <laughs> and I mean, and there's <laughs> hundreds of bodies everywhere. And ju- I mean, it, yeah. it, it like it's incredible. John Dykstra's optical effects flying all over the place and buildings are exploding. I mean, it's it's epic. <laughs> and for people that just kind of knock this off now, oh, it's, it's that movie with the girl with the tits that walks around. It's like you're you're missing the point. It's like, yes, it's it's a movie where there is a very beautiful woman who's walking around completely naked. But that's kind of the, the rub is like, OK, here's this girl who's walking around completely naked, does not give a shit. And something's wrong. Like, <laughs> like she's just a, everybody who comes up to her, she just absorbs them and it starts this plague that is getting out of control and they're harvesting the souls of humans to kind of take up to their ship. To a degree, AIDS was a new thing. So I highly doubt Dan O'Bannon had an analogy for AIDS in this, but I think it was venereal disease. <laughs> Dan O'Bannon's very open about the fact that, yeah, she is... A naked woman who, if she gets close to you, spreads a disease which you spread to other people. And then there's that line that that one of the scientists has when the SAS guy is asking him, was it sexual? He's like, overwhelmingly so. So th- <laughs> this whole movie is also an allegory to VD, if you mm-hmm. think about it, and yeah. how quickly it spreads. And Dan O'Bannon's a smart enough writer that that was all intentional. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having a, a version that was obviously completely different from uh, what it was theatrically, that that didn't help because, yeah, the theatrical cut in a lot of ways doesn't make sense. There's a lot of stuff that's left left out. It feels like more of a just sort of random B-movie. It still looks great. You still see all of the budget on the screen, but so much of the plot is left out that, that nothing makes sense. It was marketed poorly which is unfortunate because it really is an, an awesome film. And yeah, there is a, a naked lady that walks around. There's also space vampires and weird demon things that are killing everybody. And London is on fire and, and stuff. It's great. It's an, And Patrick Stewart screaming and going crazy for no reason. It's, it's a pretty great movie. And making out with Steve Ralsback. Patrick Stewart makes <laughs> and up making with out, Steve Ralsback And making too. out with Steve Ralsback. That's right. That, that happens. And it's uh, it, the movie itself is just an experience of all these crazy things that uh, Toby Hooper wanted to put up on the screen and, and a testament to, again, Dan O'Bannon's awesome writing. It, it is an, 
a sort of a, an allegory for spreading uh, venereal disease or, or AIDS or, or something like that. I, I feel like uh, it's a movie that does deserve to get uh, a lot of widespread uh, praise because there's a movie with a very similar sort of plot. It's obviously much more low key, but it follows is basically about like an alien sexual sexually transmitted disease that goes around killing people. It's a kind of a, a more downplayed version of life force. So I think if, if something like it follows can get such such notoriety and people love it so much, then people should also be checking out life force to be seeing uh, other kinds of movies that uh, tackle those sorts of concepts. And I also want to point out, am I the only one that thought the last half hour turned into a giant Quatermass film? <laughs> yeah, no, that was absolutely that. intentional. I'm sure it was. Yeah, for to get into uh, why it failed, like we go and we talked about the whole, you know, it wasn't marketed well <laughs> and they cut lots out of it. Uh, also, another small factor is I think both Cannon and Toby Hooper and the movie were sort of victims of their own ambition because like you said this was the biggest budgeted movie that canada had ever done and i i think that toby hooper had ever done i think the budget for this was bigger than poltergeist if i'm oh yeah the budget was almost 10 million dollars more than poltergeist yeah and i mean if you look at if you just read like a one or two sentence summary of the plot like it's you know vampires from outer space and the female lead spends you're gonna lose most people right there Naked. Yeah, it sounds like you're describing some low budget Jess Franco movie that was shot in two weeks. And Toby Hooper actually had the balls to try and make a multi-million dollar would be blockbuster out of it. You know, unfortunately, it didn't pay off for him. But I, I applaud the guy for having the balls to attempt it. And of course, even in the, the full cut of it where the plot makes more sense, there's still tons of just uh, crazy ideas and con- you know, explaining lots of weird concepts like uh, how to kill the the space vampires? It's got to be a certain type of metal, and you got to stab them. Uh, what is it? It's, it's, it has to be two inches below where the heart would be, or you know things like that. And weird scenes like Steve Railsback making out with Patrick Stewart, or later where they're in the helicopter and the Matilda blood... May is made out of blood. That yeah, is an yeah, amazing blood comes effect. out of Matilda May, and then yeah, it forms into Matilda May. I haven't. I off the top of my head, I can't think of any other movie with anything similar to that Mm -hmm. like you're only going to see that in life force and yeah it's a real shame that either people haven't heard of it or if you hear the movie mentioned uh they usually think of it as some sort of turkey like you'd think they were talking about a movie like troll 2 or something like that like the the only reason to watch this movie is to laugh at it which is completely misguided i think he brought up the the goofy elements. That's what Toby Hooper wanted the movie to focus on. Part of the problem was he said that they, they advertised this movie poorly. He said they advertised it as a very serious, his words, 2001-type thriller. And he, he, and he said they downplayed the sillier elements of the film, which he thinks might have helped the box office. So he outright blames the trailer for why this movie failed. And I kind of agree. It's a good trailer, but it's not representative of the film. So I do kind of agree Canon dropped the ball on this one by cutting it, by changing it, and then by marketing it, it poorly. I, I, I blame this one on Canon. This one's Canon's fault. I think it's Canon's fault because they, they have done that with um, not just that movie, but other, like, they went and changed a bunch of stuff from, like, let's say, like, Exterminator 2 is an example where they completely changed the ending. They changed certain parts in the movie. There was there was stuff filmed they didn't end up using that they included in the trailer and then made a, a completely different ending instead because, for whatever reason, they weren't happy with that cut. And who knows? The movie might have actually done better had it have been released in its original way, much like with, with uh, Life Force. It would have definitely would have made more sense. And I think if they had uh, advertised it in, in the way that the movie actually was, because it's it's not like a super serious 2001 A Space Odyssey type movie. It is a, a, a B movie that looks like an A movie with a lot of really cool concepts and some satirical stuff and some funny moments, but also some really badass moments. And I think if they were to actually advertise it like that, more people possibly would have gone to see it, especially if it were released in its original cut. I don't think any blame can be laid at Toby Hooper's feet. So yeah, and, and also I'm just going to say, I think, audiences too i think a lot of people probably weren't willing to give a multi-million dollar space vampire epic a chance absolutely canon and it really it's sad because 
Canon usually is fairly hands-off. Uh, I think they learned, but this was still relatively early on. And I think they had so much riding on it because they were like, uh, when they went to Hooper to, uh, you know, when he showed him his director's cut, they were like, okay, that's great. That'll play perfect in Europe, but uh, it won't fly in the U.S. It's too long, so we need to cut it down. So he even supervised the, uh, Hooper supervised the uh, American uh, cut and it just I mean try as you might you know if if the movie it needs to be two hours long to tell the story it needs to be two hours long there are times mm. where there's just stuff that you're going to cut that y you can't I mean there are movies where all right yeah maybe this character could be nixed or there's something that can be taken out but sometimes it, it just doesn't work especially on a movie that's like this big in scale so unfortunately canon really kind of screwed the pooch on this one well canon didn't see it that way they blamed hooper for it so he still had two pictures left on his three picture deal when he started making invaders from mars they cut his budget now he's only got seven million dollars they're not going to give him 25 million dollars again now we're into shooting is in 1985 although the movie will come out on june 6 1986 invaders from mars had problems right from the get-go now, the original 1953 Invaders from Mars is a public domain film. There's this piece of shit out there named Wade Williams. He calls himself a, a film archivist. What he does is he buys up public domain films, buys up the master prints, alters them, recopyrights them, which was what you can do if you alter them, and he puts Wade Williams Presents in whatever the movie is. And then he tries to buy up every print and you gotta remember in the 80s and late 70s this was much easier to do he would buy up every print that does not say wade williams presents on it so that way even though the movie's public domain good luck finding a print that's not his copyrighted version that's what he did with invaders from mars he heard that canon wanted to remake the movie public domain movie they didn't have to buy the rights he mm -hmm. came in and said whoa whoa hey you guys didn't pay me rather than fight him in court they made him an executive producer on the film, and they paid him off rather than fight him mm. in court. That was the first mistake on the film, is having Wade Williams involved. It's almost a straight remake, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. I think it was Cecil that pointed out earlier, the monster redesigns are really clever and they're really fun. It's got a mostly great cast, and it just doesn't work. For some reason, the film doesn't work. I don't care about the kid. I don't care about his parents. I cared about the military angle. In all honesty, I thought James Karen was a fun-as-hell character. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see more of James Karen in this, not Hunter Carson. So, I don't know. Invaders from Mars, it looks great. It just does not work <clears> for me at all. And one thing that I think Toby Hooper totally screwed up on this film, the original 1953 film, is all shot because the movie is taking place from a child's perspective. It's all shot at low upward angles to give a child's perspective on what everything looks like. And that really does play in the 1953 version. It doesn't here. Hooper shot this like a 1980s monster movie. So you kind of lose the, in, the even the, the child's perspective thing, which even though they kept the idiotic twist ending, makes no sense when it's not shot from a child's perspective. Eh, I mean... It's been a while since I've seen it, so I can't argue everything. I just kind of dug it from like a production level. I thought uh, a lot of the stuff was cool. I, I kind of agree with you. The kid was annoying. Do, do you know how Hunter Carson got cast? How? That's Karen Black's son. Oh, really? <laughs> and Karen Black is the star of the movie. Uh, another bit <clears throat> of idiotic trivia. That horrendous actor, Hunter Carson, was mm -hmm. the original Bud Bundy. Oh, dear. <laughs> In the original Married with Children pilot, that was Bud Bundy. And he gave oh, about God. the same quality performance that he gives here, which is annoying oh. as hell. Just wanted to point yeah. that out. Keep going, Cecil. Yeah, there are a lot of times where uh, you'll watch a movie. Like I just uh, watched a movie called, a, well, did a movie called Witchery. And there's a kid in the movie who he obviously is somebody, the producer's kid, or because this kid is awful. <laughs> it's like every line is 
we are buying that house over there. Like just reading off of, you know, somebody's holding up a piece of paper with those lines on it off camera. <laughs> but um, yeah, with, with Invaders from Mars, uh, yeah, the kid was annoying and like, you know, not uh, last action hero level of annoying, but, uh, you know, still irritating. And uh, I, I thought it was kind of cool. It was definitely the weakest of the three, but um, still it showed creativity and it was like fun. Uh, not something I'm going out of my way to watch, but uh, it definitely not on par with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and nowhere near Life Force. Now, I can I understand where you're coming from. Like I said earlier, this is easily my least favorite of the three movies Toby Hooper made for canon. It's I think the movie's okay, but it, it just it's not as ambitious or as trippy and out there as Life Force. And it's also, even though it has a few funny moments, like where the one guy's trying to talk to the alien and then he ends up getting blasted. But overall, it's not nearly as funny as Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Like they were saying, the designs of the aliens is kind of cool. This kind of goes to what you were saying before, where uh, even though in terms of the the look of it and the design of it, it's different from the original uh, plot-wise, it's very similar. And this was at a time where you had a lot of remakes of 50 sci-fi movies like John Carpenter's version of The Thing or Cronenberg's version of The Fly, where they took the idea of the original movie, but then took it in some very different directions. And this movie didn't really do that mm-hmm. other than, I guess, shooting from regular angles instead of upward angles. So, yeah, it's I don't hate the movie, but it's I think it's easily the least of uh, Toby Hooper's canon films. I think Brandon put it pretty well in terms of uh, it's not it's not as out there as Life Force and it's not really the same level of goofy comedic that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is. And it is kind of just a straight remake, but doesn't have uh, the sort of originality of the original with the upward angle and, and stuff like that. It is the weakest one. I would have to agree with that. I think visually it's, it's a nice looking film. The aliens look cool. You know, some of the lighting and, and shots and stuff look pretty nice. But overall, it's... It's one that I don't find myself going back to all that often. Like, I'm definitely more on the side of uh, Life Force and and Chainsaw 2 as far as, like, you know, Toby's better work goes. But, yeah, Invaders from Mars, I think it's um, pretty obvious that there were budget cuts, that it didn't let him use as much money. And that was another one that they were very unhappy with again. Like, it it seemed like they thought he was going to make much more of a serious sort of scary alien movie, and then they watched it and... We're very disappointed with uh, what it ended up being. Well, so were audiences and critics. This one, $7 million budget, $4.9 million domestic take. So Mm. again, they lost money on this. So it was at this point they decided, Cannon was like, okay, this Toby Hooper thing's not working out the way we wanted it to. We've given him a ton of money and he hasn't made any back. So we've got (laughs) a problem here. We still got another picture. This time they took not much more creative control because Toby, you know, the, like Wakey pointed out earlier, they didn't like how, ter- how Texas Chainsaw 2 turned out. They cut his budget after he started filming. His original budget was $6 million for this movie. After they began filming, they cut his budget to $4.7 million for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Now, this was shot almost back to back with Invaders from Mars to the point where he had to start pre-production on Texas Chainsaw 2 while still in the editing phase of Invaders from Mars, which might also explain why that movie didn't turn out so well, as he was basically making two films at the same time. Here he decided he didn't want to repeat himself with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He didn't want to just make a straight sequel. So he's like, let's make a satire of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's not what he told Canon, though. Mm -hmm. He told Canon he was making a horror film. He didn't tell them he was making a satire film. And he, he, he defends that <laughs> if he had, they probably wouldn't have let him make it. So to his credit, he did slip one under the radar there. But mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, fantastic film. I think I, I think I actually like it better than the first film on a rewatchability level. Here's the problem. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 ran into even worse promotion and marketing disasters than Invaders from Mars and Life Force did. Because when they submitted the film to the MPAA, it came back with an X rating. NC-17 won't exist for another few years. came back with an X rating and with the stipulation, no amount of cuts will get this to an R. So they're stuck with, we've got a movie we can't market. Because back then, 
an X-rated film. You can't advertise in a newspaper, which was the chief way of getting the movie out there, and you can't advertise on television. So all of a sudden, it's like half of their advertising potential is gone. They could only advertise on radio and in horror movie magazines, essentially. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, it's almost, it's almost a fluke. This is the one that made money. The one they couldn't advertise made back almost double its budget. How in the hell does that happen? Well, I think obviously the biggest part of that one was just the name of it, the fact that it was you know, the sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't read any specific reviews of the movie when it first came out, but from what I understand, the reaction from both critics and like even though it made money, a lot of audiences really hostile to this movie when it first came out. I can sympathize because when I first saw this when I was a teenager, I hated this movie with a passion. <laughs> because like a lot of people at that time, I was just expecting a straight-up sequel to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that's not what the movie is at all. But now that I can actually see the movie and appreciate it for what it is, I actually like it quite a bit. I wouldn't say, I won't say I like it more than the first one, but it is, it is, I think it is a very good sequel. And I also, again, I appreciate the fact that Toby Hooper didn't just repeat itself because there are a lot of sequels that are just lazy and they're just, they're essentially rehashes of the first movie, like the same plot with different actors, you know, playing characters with different names. I like the fact that he did something different with this one. And, it, you know, for all the reputation uh, the first movie has for being, you know, people who haven't seen it think it's this super gory movie when really it's not. And then you have this one, which is much more comedic and parodic in nature, but it's also a lot bloodier than the first movie. Yeah, to yeah this one is super to a significant, gory. Yeah, to a significant degree. Like, and, yeah. and, and to the point where they have parts that are you know, sick jokes in the best sense of the term. Like, there's parts where you're sort of horrified and laughing at the same time. If they had left in Joe Bob Briggs' deleted scene, that would have been the perfect example of horror and funny. Joe Bob Briggs, in, in his scene that was cut, and it, it's it's weird how Joe Bob got into the movie. He was he was a big proponent of the first film, and he was working for Rolling Stone at the time, and they sent him to Texas to cover the making of the movie. And so Toby's like, hey, you want a cameo? Yeah, sure, why not? So <laughs> he was playing himself, as a, as a really scumbag movie critic coming out of a movie theater and he gets jumped by, by Leatherface and he's making Joe Bob Briggs-style commentary over his two female co-stars being butchered in front of him. <laughs> and he, he, it was cut for time, and, and I can see that because according to Toby Hooper, and I agree, it's a three-minute scene that stops the movie dead. He said, like, the momentum just stops dead where this was. So I agree the scene probably deserved to be cut, but it was a hilariously funny scene. Oh, well, we still have uh, Dennis Hopper doing some chain safu at the hardware store, so... I'm bringing it down! <laughs> I am the lord of the harvest. <laughs> Four stars. I'm the lord of the harvest, bring it down! That that may be one of Dennis Hopper's best roles ever. Um, I, I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. I think it's a solid example of how to do a sequel right. You, you gotta do something different even if it's going to give it kind of a different tone or a different story and i love that this one went with a different tone it went with the the familiar characters from the first movie you had you know a new a new hitchhiker for this one which was uh, brilliantly played by uh god damn it what's his name again bill mosley um, bill mosley that's right the the epic bill bill mosley playing the epic chop top who is just so many great lines from the lick my plate you dog dick You've got, uh, you know, they're, they're dragging around the, the corpse of the hitchhiker from the first one. At least I think that's what it's meant to be. I've always loved this one a lot. I don't know if I if I like it more than the the first one than so much of just I like it as its own film. Like it, uh, it manages to do something really good as what it is, as more of a kind of satirical slasher movie, super ultra violent, very, very neon and packed full of 80s sleaze. Whereas the first one almost looks like a, like an accident video, like for, for like a construction site showing you what not to do and how messed up you can get. It has that very grimy and dirty, dangerous sort of feel to it. So I, I love both of the movies for different merits. And I think it's a solid follow-up sequel. I think uh, it, it's a solid example of how to do uh, a, a sequel right. So I think out of the, the three, 
Toby Hooper Cannon films. I would I'd say Texas Chainsaw Massacre too is, is among my favorites. And I remember I'm the opposite of Brandon. I saw this uh, movie when I was young as well, and I loved it when I first saw it. In fact, I saw it two before I saw one. So I was expecting Chainsaw One to be more like two, and was like, oh well, this is a uh, this is pretty goddamn different. It's a lot gloomier, but I still like what I'm seeing. Yeah, it's, I think it's a it's a solid film, and it deserved to do so much better because just in terms of the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels, it's easily one of the best. I, I think they they kind of stopped being good after the third one. Next Generation was a pile of crap. The remakes were completely pointless. That new one that just came out, the prequel, then that other Michael Bay plat- Mi- Michael Bay looking Platinum Dunes pile of crap. So I think it, it was uh, it was part of the the glory years of of when Leatherface was still very much relevant and actually awesome and scary, and the, the movies were actually interesting. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, the first time that I saw it, I actually came in uh, about the halfway point and because uh, I, I was at a, a party and they had it playing. Watching it, and I'm like, what the hell is this? And they're like, it's Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre 2. And I'm like, no, it isn't. I'm like, because there's like, why is it funny? Like, this can't possibly be right. So, uh, you know, I got to watching it and, and uh, you know, there's there's Chainsaw Foo uh, with, with Dennis Hopper and uh, Stretch. And, and I'm just like, this the hell's going on? Bill Mosley. Well, at the time, I didn't know really who Bill Mosley was, but it was like he keeps picking dead skin off of his metal plate on his like, what, what the hell is going on? I went, <laughs> you know, watch the watch the whole thing. Well, watch what was left of it, maybe, you know, 40 minutes or so. And then I was like, all right, I have to go see this thing from the beginning. So uh, maybe a week later or so, I went and rented it and watched it. And I was like, all right, I I don't know why he went comedy wise, but this is really funny. And uh, I liked it and it kind of grew on me. Like I didn't like I, I enjoyed it, but I was just kind of so confused because probably the way that uh, Golan Globus were was like, I wasn't expecting this to be, uh, you know, a comedy satire, but it's what it ended up being. And uh, as far as uh, why it succeeded, probably off of the backs of the back of the original, it just it had such a um, a history behind it and people wanted to see the movie again. And I mean, the first one was such a monumental hit that they were like, oh, you know, Toby Hooper's back and he's directing the sequel. This is going to be amazing. And I think that it probably succeeded because it's just such a bizarre and entertaining movie. And uh, I would like to think that audiences got it, which is why it did well. But uh, who's to say? I mean, it, it's it could be one or the other, either that they enjoyed it because it ended up being so ridiculous or they went in expecting Texas Chainsaw 1 and got a different experience. Well, this film was a was a disaster behind the scenes. They decided to shoot this in Texas in what turned out to be at that time the hottest summer on record. So that did not help matters at all. He's a crew were literally passing out from heat exhaustion, which also <laughs> didn't help with all of the meat that they had to have on set for set dressing. Makeup kept literally melting off some of the actors after, you know, not only is it the hottest summer on record, all of the hot lights you need. So he said some of these rooms that like they were shooting in for all of the tunnels could get up to 110 degrees with the lights, which just, and the fact that his budget was cut didn't help. Glenn and Globus actually cut his budget so much, they sent their comptroller to the set to count every penny he was spending. (laughs) So he had an accountant standing there going, do you really need that light? So that's not really good to induce real creativity right there. And no. then there are a bunch of deleted scenes from these movies besides Joe Bob Briggs. And I think for once, thankfully deleted. For instance, okay, they already had Dennis Hopper's character of Lefty as the uncle of Sally and Franklin Hardesty from the first film. Okay, you're stretching credulity a little bit. He was also supposed to be Stretch's long-lost father. And that's why he <laughs> cared so much about rescuing Stretch. And I'm like, okay, I get it that you're going for a satire, but thank God those that subplot was dropped. Yeah, it's just, I mean, there's no way to know how it would have affected the film if it was inserted, but just it just seems like unnecessary. The, the movie is perfectly fine without it. And honestly, I kind of like the fact that part of the reason uh, Dennis Hopper was going in the tunnels after Stretch was just because he was such a psycho. I kind of I kind of like that explanation. 
Uh, I think it's good that they left that out. I think it would have made it, even if it was meant to be kind of satirical by like going really far with the backstory and trying to tie it in that much with the first movie and sort of playing it for laughs. It it ultimately would have just made the movie too convoluted. Yeah, sometimes when you're in the filming process, things seem like a really good idea. And then as they come together, you realize that it's not a good idea. So uh, that's something that they they decided was a bad idea and they dropped it and they were in the right in doing so. Well, one Mm. bad idea that did make it into the film that Tom Savini openly criticizes is some of the edits and some of the length of the edits of some of his special effects shots. He thinks they left in too much gore. For instance, when the yuppie is getting his head slashed in half, he thought they would leave that on camera for a second or two and then cut away. He's vocally unhappy with how long they held that shot. He said, you can see how ridiculously fake that effect is by holding it for eight fucking seconds the way they did to show the blood squirting out. He he said he's he's like, that should have been a two second shot at an eight seconds. You see how fake it is. I think he's being way too hard on himself. That was a good effect. Actually, it's not. It it looked really goofy the way the head was bouncing and the obviously fake hands. I got to go with Savini on this one. That shot was held way too long. And he said throughout the whole movie it was that. The, The editor seemed to have reveled in the gore to the point where he didn't know when too much was too much. I got to go with that. The the movie could be tightened a little. Yeah, probably. I don't know. It just kind of added to the campiness of it. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, Savini, he's a master at his craft. So uh, I'm going to kind of err in favor of him as far as, you know, oh, it doesn't look as good. But the thing is, like, you know, we're all critical of everything that we do. You know, oh, I could have uh, edited this better or I could have shot this better or I could have you know, cut this here, or done this here. Cecil could try being right for once. I certainly could, you know, <laughs> uh, and y- you kind of come to a point where especially in something like this, where you're doing a job for someone else. So you create this thing, you give it to them, you give them the end product and then they take it and edit it. And of course, you're going to be like, oh, it should have done this or they they should have cut it here. So I I don't think that it was bad. I think that uh, he's just being nitpicky because it was more or less his baby. I'd agree with him more if if the movie was supposed to be like a a truly gritty, horrifying movie like the first one. But I think the fact that the gore is so over the top kind of works with the tone it's going for. I understand like, okay, yeah, you probably could have trimmed some things, but I don't think the amount of gore being in there ruins the movie at all. Critics did not like this film. Like I said, this one actually made almost double its budget. It's not a bad criticism, but it's a fair criticism of the three Toby Hooper films is he was given essentially a blank check. To when, he, when he signed this three-picture deal with Canon, it was to make Space Vampires, but then he had his pick for his next two films to fill out that contract, and he didn't do anything original. He had an adaptation, a remake, and a sequel. A lot of people were like, Toby, we want to see a Toby Hooper film. What do you want to make that's your idea? You know, that's not a sequel or a remake or an adaptation. I think that's a fair criticism. It's not necessarily a bad thing that he made adaptations. That's fine. But I think it's fair that he was given free reign and didn't try and to and he didn't try to do anything original with it. That I think says something about his cocaine problem at the time. And I'm not sliding the guy. He admits he had a massive cocaine problem when he worked for Canon. Should Toby Hooper have used his three picture deal to make something unique or to just make I don't mean this word as bad as it sounds, but derivative works. Well, I mean, Life Force was his foot in the door. That was the that was the Life one Force that... is what got him signed. So I'm not blaming that as an adaptation, but his next two being a remake and a sequel. Well, I mean, uh, look at look at Peter Jackson. You know, he does uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He can do any movie he wants. They're like, whatever you want to do. And he wants to do a really super expensive remake of King Kong. So I kind of look at it from the perspective of was most likely a fan of the original uh, Invaders from Mars and wanted to put his own spin on it to a certain degree. And that's what he did. And then with Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, he wanted to do a follow up to a movie that, you know, was what put him on the map and put, again, a different spin on it. So I I don't know, maybe... uh, maybe there wasn't anything really uh, like exciting him at the time. Maybe he didn't really have any great 
ideas of things that he could have done that he wanted to do. But so he wanted to take some uh, two things that he was already familiar with and kind of continue along with that. I mean, there, the other thing, too, is you don't know what was going on behind the scenes. They might have they might have been like, OK, well, Life Force wasn't a hit. Uh, you know, you want to do this movie. We're not going to give you that much money. And then after um, after things were kind of uh, awry with invaders from mars they were like all right well let's go back to your roots and he went back to texas chainsaw massacre 2 but he ended up putting his own different spin on it by making it a satire uh, i mean it, the truth is somewhere in the middle and most likely i mean half of golden globus is dead so they're not going to talk about it and toby hooper now has nothing but high you know nice things to say about his time with uh, canon he says you know if he had had the opportunity he probably would still be making movies for them he yeah but really... go back and read articles in fangoria and starlog at the time he was not so complimentary i know but i'm talking now which is why i'm saying that we're never going to really find out the full stories of them so wait a second you're saying a filmmaker in the mid 80s had a cocaine problem really <laughs> i know wow. weird, huh? <laughs> that worked for canon films yeah exactly oh, man. like you were saying um he can't be, you know, Life Force was his his entry into this deal, so I think he gets a pass for that one. Regarding Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I would bet you anything as soon as the box office returns for Life Force came in, he was probably under huge pressure from Canon to be like, all right, you better deliver something that is going to make money. So the logical thing to do is like, all right, well, I'll make a sequel to my best known film. That's probably got the best shot. So even uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, I don't blame him for that. The one thing where you could kind of level this criticism at him is with the Invaders from Mars remake. Would it have been nice to see some weird original idea from him instead of that? Sure, but yeah, maybe he was just a big fan of the original movie and just, just wanted to put his... Uh, his take on it. Who knows? I don't know if I would necessarily call them derivative. I mean, yeah, sure. Um, Life Force is an adaptation, but it's incredibly different from the source material. Dan O'Bannon went and sort of did his own thing, and Toby really, really brought his A-game to the direction of that film, and it looks fantastic, and everybody involved in it did an awesome job. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, yeah, it's a sequel, but it's completely different from his first film and he made a completely different film. He almost, it's almost a self parody, but not like a self deprecating one. It's, he ended up making a, a great movie out of that. And even with uh, invaders from Mars, like there was a, a trend at that time in the eighties where, you know, remakes of classic horror movies were coming out. You know, you had uh, John Carpenter's the thing you had David Cronenberg's fly. So that was something that seemed to be uh, marketable. Something that was well received is a sort of an eighties, modern look at uh how this movie could have been done and obviously invaders from mars didn't really hit its mark all that all that well it was a little too much of a beat for beat remake but i i don't fault him too much for it i think as uh as we were saying with, with guys like like peter jackson and stuff like that he just wanted to make a movie that he was probably a fan of growing up and wanted to do his own spin on it and there are aspects of it that are really cool and there are other ones where it's it kind of falls flat I don't know. Not not every uh, not every filmmaker is gonna gonna put out stuff that everybody likes all the time. I think it is one of his weaker films, but I I don't know. I wouldn't really call it uh, derivative. It's just I guess it's just something he wanted he wanted to do to probably pay tribute to a movie that he digs. That's fair. But then unfortunately, with all of these movies, with the first two tanking and the the third film, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, not making enough to make up for the first two tanking. Canon was also facing their own problems at this point. Their bad paper and some of their business practices were starting to catch up with them, and then they would start their collapse the following year. Some people blamed Toby Hooper for that, by them giving him so much money and him not being able to deliver on anything. Canon at this point was pumping out $1 million Death Wish sequels that were making $4 million opening weekend. So Toby Hooper mm. was almost one of the only people working for Canon that was consistently underperforming for them. So some people blame Toby Hooper for Canon's eventual fall. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but these films failing at the box office is definitely a factor that has to be brought into it. That said, going back and looking at these three films... From a 2016 perspective, do you think modern audience audiences have reappraised all three of these films, or are they still the obscurities that 
never made their money back in the 80s? I think they've, well, uh, I think they've reappraised Life Force and Chainsaw Massacre to, to a small, small extent. Uh, in my opinion, they, it, I hope that continues because I think both of them deserve more attention and more respect than they get. The one outlier is Invaders from Mars. That one's still sort of forgotten. It's a movie that you might see on, I don't know, on TNT at 2 a.m. And that's kind of it. But yeah, with the other two, there's been a a slight reappraisal of them recently with the internet. I hope it goes further because I think both those movies deserve better reputations than what their their box office and their critical reception at the time would indicate. I'd say they've been uh, they've been reappraised. I've always kind of considered all three of those to be the sort of casual B movie watcher movie, like the one that sort of people who get into stuff like Trauma or Maniac Cop or whatever, like kind of just randomly getting into movies like that, tend to know about TCM Two, Life Force, and Invaders from Mars. Like I consider them to be semi well known like cult films, and um, it'd be nice if they if they became even more well known because Life Force doesn't really deserve to just be known as like a cheesy B or Z movie. It, it deserves to be known as like a rather epic sci-fi film. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 deserves deserves more praise as well. But I'm uh, I'm pretty happy with the fact that people do at least know about it. And uh, I really don't think it's fair for Canon to blame Toby Hooper for their downfall. Like obviously they did give the guy a lot of money, but they also mismarketed the shit out of his films. They they didn't advertise them the way that they should have been advertised. They didn't release the cuts that they should have released. So it's it's kind of harsh to uh, to pay the guy out like that and then claim that he was the reason for their for their downfall. But I mean they didn't even market his films correctly. Um, they had a lot of bombs. Uh, they they did do very well with their with their Charles Bronson and their Chuck Norris vehicles like. I think it goes without saying that Delta Force is probably one of the biggest action movies of the 80s, and Canon put it out. Everybody fucking knows about Delta Force, but I doubt and they even Invasion know that And Invasion USA. Was, and Invasion USA, and I, I don't think anybody knows, or at least people do, but most people, like the majority, have no idea that it was put out by this like little uh, middle-class filmmaking company that was Canon Films. Like A lot of people consider those Chuck Norris films to be huge like action blockbusters that dominated the 80s, and they did but they were put out by a little company. So Canon did have that. They did know what to do with, with some of their bigger action names, but they did also have a lot of bombs. And unfortunately, some of those Toby Hooper movies were some of those bombs, but I, I, wouldn't, blame, I wouldn't blame him for that. No, I think uh, at, at the very least, Life Force and um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 have been reappraised. I know uh, the fan base was growing faster for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, uh, but within the past few years, Life Force has really uh, gotten a resurgence. And uh, I, I saw the there was a thing with uh, Stephen Railsback where he was talking about how, you know, he has 88 credits to his name uh, movies television all kinds of stuff and he says the thing that most people still you know have been coming up to him about is life force they're like i absolutely love that movie i thought that you did a you know brilliant performance in it and he's got some big stuff behind him so for people to he played charles manson in the 70s yeah he played charles <laughs> manson with marilyn burns yeah. in uh, in helter skelter and that was actually how that's actually how how he met toby hooper how he met to toby hooper yeah, toby hooper was visiting marilyn burns on the set of helter skelter he said steve relsbeck terrified him because he wouldn't come out of character <laughs> So but, he's like, I got to make a movie with this guy. He, you know, for for a movie like that, uh, you know, roughly 30 years later to, to still be getting somebody to, uh, who has his career that they still have people coming up to him and talking about. I mean, that right there says that uh, it's kind of gone beyond just being an underground thing, uh, especially now that um, it's been released on Blu-ray. And so people are actually seeing the correct version. Uh, I think a lot of people are now understanding what some people have made a fuss over. It's like, oh, wait. It's actually a really amazing movie when also, also bring into the fact that Patrick Stewart has been a champion of Life Force ever since it came out. He was on I can't remember if it was The Tonight Show or David Letterman. He was on some late night talk show in the late 90s and they were asking him about like, you know, uh, your on-screen kisses and he pointed out his first on-screen kiss was by Steve Ralsback in Life Force. Mm -hmm. And the host <laughs> was like, "What?" <laughs> So Patrick Stewart is very, he's been a champion of this film. He's not ashamed of being in this movie. 
No, he's even said of all the directors he's worked with at his entire career, uh, Toby Hooper was his favorite. You know, you get some people that are huge stars when they look at their sci-fi movies that they got their start in. Patrick Stewart's not ashamed of Life Force at all. Oh, absolutely not. He, he You can tell he gave his all in that role. He was easily one of the highlights. He just he played that role with absolutely no restraint. Which is what it needed. I mean, he had to make out with yeah. Steve Rells back by having a space vampire chick inside his body. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that, that can't be easy to get into method-wise. Like, just that scene where he's like, I forget if it was like the asylum cell or like jail cell, and he's just like screaming his fucking head off. Yeah. Like he's just completely letting go of any any control and just getting completely immersed in the in the role and i think he 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 brings so much to that movie and it's it's no surprise at all that he champions it and uh you know has such a high regard for for toby hooper because he, he clearly had a, had a blast making that movie and that's the thing i think the movies have been reappraised even invaders from mars it, it recently came out the shout factory scream factory just did a special edition of that 10 years ago who would have ever thought the 1986 Invaders from Mars would ever get a special edition at all, let alone the lavish, <laughs> loving one that it got? So I think even Invaders from Mars, which we've kind of crapped on in this episode, it has been reappraised as well. I think all three of Toby Hooper's films have been reappraised, and I think it was just Canon mismarketed these. Hooper didn't have creative control to the point of you know the final edits in most of the cases, and I think just 1985, 1986 were a couple of bad years for him and he just needed to wait for these movies to find their due. So, Canon is no more, but Peter is still around. Where can people find him if they wish to? You can find me on the uh, the Twitters at uh, Cinematica, YouTube, The Cinemasochist, Facebook, The Cinemasochist, and on 1201beyond.com with uh, with some merch coming pretty soon. You want a you want a Cinemasochist t-shirt, you want a Cinemasochist phone case, maybe a maybe a pair of Cinemasochist macho man style 80s glasses, mosey on over to 1201beyond.com. Check out some of the other awesome shit on there, too. I believe Josh is on there as well. Imagine that. It's only my site. <laughs> Cecil is always wrong, but if you want to find him, he you could do so where? Oh, I am right. You know it. Or uh, left. <laughs> I am at escapistmagazine.com. Uh, I'm also on YouTube and then Facebook and Twitter. And he actually, Good Bad Flicks is actually a bad show. I just like giving him credit. Oh, yeah. Oh, and <laughs> goodbadflicks.com, too, if uh, you want to go there. But, uh, yeah. Hooray. It's a, it's, a, it's a ritzy little operation. It is a ritzy operation for <laughs> fancy gentlemen like myself. <laughs> and, Brandon, where can people find you and your unique bad movie reviews? Oh, well, I was actually thinking of uh, trademarking uh, cult reviews, <laughs> just like the Fine Bros trademarked React, but uh, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, you can find me on YouTube. Just search Brandon Tenold and I should come up. I'm also on Twitter at Brandon Tenold and on Facebook on official Brandon Tenold. And Ooh, as official. A, yeah, and as a just a one final thing. I wonder if anybody comes up to Steve Rails back today and says, I loved you in Nuki. <laughs> I, I, th I think that's the end of the show. Have a good night and keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.